And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 99 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Sunday, October 4th, 2015. Well, it's a new TV season, folks. It's upon us. And so what are you watching? Are you easing up to Supergirl? Yeah, it feels like a little bit like an old Ally McBeal episode masked up with Devil Wears Prada. Only, you know, with a cape. Or how about Angel from Hell with the Jane Lynch from Glee looking like she just rolled out of bed? Or how about Best Time Ever with Neil Patrick Harris, who is hosting a live combo skit game show musical that kind of looks like it was thought up by someone who just rolled out of bed? Or maybe you're watching Blindspot, you know, the one with the girl with the tattoos all over her body. She crawls out of the duffel bag. Yeah, let the high-stakes shenanigans begin. Or maybe it's Blood Noil. That's your thing. Where Don Johnson, yeah, that Don Johnson, Miami Vice Don Johnson, wears a lot of hats. Literally, a lot of hats. Or maybe medical shows, Chicago Med, Code Black, Containment, Dr. Ken, and, well, just so many medical shows, so much hematoma, gamma, globulin, blah, 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 stat. And finally, maybe sitcoms are your thing. Maybe you need grandfathered, you know, where John Stamos is a longtime bachelor who discovers he's a father and a grandfather, and then there's a cute baby, and he's awkward, and he's trying to figure out, you know, how to be, I guess, in a full house. Anyway, not to be outdone as Joe and I approach our 100th show, we'll call this maybe the last episode before our new season. So you can expect all kinds of intrigue on PNR. Tune in on Monday for Supervisory Special Agent Joe Polizzi and how he handles the new and unpredictable rogue secret agent Robert Rose and solve the world's toughest stories on content marketing and native advertising. Or tune in Saturdays for a very special episode. Will they break up? Or, you know, that episode where that rascally charming and ever debonair rogue Joe Polizzi has to have that roommate, the straight-laced and up-by-the-book Robert Rose. It's that special hijinks with the cutest baby raves you've ever seen in the most outrageous ranch you'll ever hear in this hysterical new comedy you'll be rolling with laughter at the new catchphrase is it the swiffer pad yet all right enough of that let's get this new season of hilarity intrigue and unintelligible medical terminology on the road and to help me get our exudate and lymph adenophony intubated is my friend my colleague my co-host my good good friend the red Reddington of content marketing mr joe polizzi how are you buddy i am i'm fine i just uh, just arrived in denver and i'm absolutely sure that no one would ever watch a show that you and i are in. I, I've Come actually. On. I, I'm you so and I, as buddy, detec- as buddy detectives, that would be that would be a great show. It, Driving it, around in an old Ford, like you know, in an old Ford something, you know, like a like a, you know one of those old muscle cars, and and we drive around and we slide around on the hood and jump around with our guns and stuff. Come on, people would watch that. It, it would be a show about nothing. It would be maybe <laughs> well, that's that's yeah, how we should well, pitch it. What else is new? It, it, yeah, it's it, like nothing <laughs> happens. It's just a show. But Seinfeld did pretty well with that. We should give it a shot. Exactly. Tell me, but it has to be a detective show. I won't do it unless it's a detective show. Well, are you the straight lace guy? And I'm the. I think I'd be the straight lace. I guy. think it's a little bit like Starsky and Hutch, right? You know, so they both have their own sort of little quirks and stuff. You know, like uh, you know, I, I don't know. You're the ladies' man, and uh, I'm like the computer nerd or something like that. <laughs> I think we should do more like a Zoolander type. Of thing. I think that would be more fitting for us. <laughs> Anyways. Hey, do we have uh, do we have news this week? We do have news. It's Thank getting God. to be that time of year where the news is filling the pipeline. So um, it's back to school and all of that. And so <clears throat> our first news story, the one we want to cover a little bit on, 
written by a friend uh, of the show, certainly Jay Acunzo, um, on his Sorry for Marketing blog. And the headline is Rethinking How We Structure Content Marketing Teams, The Pod Approach. Jay starts out this blog by saying, you know, perspective in the workplace is a funny thing. It's incredibly valuable to be able to compare and contrast your current role or company to past experiences. You've got to be able to make sense of the situation at hand and better interpret events as they unfold. And since he left Google, and he was at Google for some time and working with other companies, one of the things he's struck by, he says in the article, is one thing that Google do, did, or at least attempted to do, that others don't seem to understand, which is reorganization as a proactive weapon to attack something good, not react actively reflex to something bad. I love that line. I think that's such an interesting, interesting concept. He then goes on to talk about if we're really serious about this idea of content marketing, and we really believe in this huge shift in how we operate and how we staff, we need to rethink and reorganize our teams by how we actually do this. And then he actually suggests what he calls the pod approach uh, for handling this. And I won't belabor the article anymore without asking you, my friend, what did you think of his pod approach in this uh, in this article? Well, I, I actually really liked the article, and I enjoy Jay's writing as well, because he always, yes. as, as he was going on and on about, he really needed to eat breakfast before he wrote the post. I, I appreciated that. I, it's, you know, it's interesting that when I used to call on, you know, large enterprises where custom publishing was just a small department, pretty much left alone to do their publications work. This is very similar to the way it was. And then marketing got a hold of it and just <laughs> totally ripped it to shreds <laughs> I think because they tried to bring it in. Oh, I think when marketing said this content thing, like this is something that we need, uh, they went out to publications and brought them in. And then I think that's where you got into, well, this is the way we do it in marketing and this is the way we do it in PR and this is the way we do it in communications you sort of have to abide by the way that we're structured. And I think then it went all downhill with campaign mentality and whatnot. So I love the, you know, the idea that he goes through, obviously, very small team, uh, you know, complementary team, well-rounded, fits together, a singular mission, which is very unique because I could see multiple pods in one company doing this. And it's almost similar, I guess, I wanted your take. Don't you think this is similar to the way we set it up at, at CMI in a lot of cases? It is very similar, and 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 my take on this is that it's 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 an absolute it's one very good way to approach this. I mean, this is what you know. Not to put too fine a point on this, this is what we do in consulting and advisory. This is what we help companies figure out: is how to reorganize teams and processes, workflow, technologies, and people to really support this idea of content marketing. And so, I'll tell you, as one proposed model. Um, it's a great one, and, and it's one that I've seen absolutely work. Um, the challenge, as you very appropriately pointed out, is that in many enterprise companies, especially large, older companies, this is something that's really hard to unwind before you can wind it back up again. You know, this the, what happens is is that you know you go in and content marketing is being done in experimental ways in some group. And then the question becomes, well, where should it actually be, you know, where should it situate itself more permanently as it scales? Because very often the place where it sort of gets root and starts to get, you know, effectiveness early 
isn't the most advantageous place for it to actually take root and, and build. And you don't have the luxury of saying, well, we'll just hire new people or we'll just make your whole job, your whole team's job, content marketing. You know, In many ways, it's, well, it's going to be a percentage of a cross-functional team or it's going to be a percentage of your time and you're going to need to move over here or this is going to be where it's going to be for PR. You know, There are compromises that have to be made, not only for the politics, but just for the structure of the business and how things work. And so it's a spectrum of how how much you can do immediately. It's very hard. You know, it's easier for a technology company or those that have grown up in the digital age that don't have the legacy idea of, uh, you know, digital versus regular marketing and PR and brand and, and all of these teams that sort of need to unwind themselves and get their arms around this versus, you know, a more digitally fluent team that is actually understands and, and is really built around the idea of marketing more broadly and isn't siloed and separated like that. And so as as a model, it's a really great one. We've seen other ones work where you've got, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a thing that I call the story helping organization, which isn't necessarily uh, a storytelling organization like what Jay is doing here where content services, be, you know, things like persona development and tagging and content strategy become a service to other parts of the organization as a centralized function rather than as a sort of self-contained content creation group. There are a number of models that I've seen work and that we work with our clients all the time. So I do like it. Um, it's just, it's, it's one particular model in it that, that that's being proposed here. I, I think my favorite uh, section in here is one where he, uh, he quotes somebody named Robert Rose, uh, who says, <laughs> who says that too many point. organizations have misunderstood content marketing to be collateral with less brand. I love that. Because that isn't that, but that's the thinking, right? Yeah, it's basically oh, we'll just, we'll just, yeah, we're just, we're going to communicate out there. We're not going to mention our products and services very much, and then that's it. Instead of really looking at, we're going to build an asset, and and over the long term, that's really going to pay off as an investment. That's right. Yeah, that's my that's my new that's my new sort of rant in my in in the talk that I give which is where he which is where he heard that and he was very kind to quote me there but but it's it's I mean my new talk I say basically look if you it if you look at content marketing as just an alternative form of collateral you'll fail at both right you'll fail at campaign based marketing and you'll fail at collateral marketing cuz it won't work do you think that the way that he has the content marketing pod set up where there's I mean just so people can visualize this you have a marketer who basically is looks like the the person in charge of distribution getting the content found uh go out and getting subscribers then you have the producer who is creating the content on a regular basis and then you have this what he calls the strategist which i've always called the chief content officer role but it's basically the similar role of the strategist where that's the person that's really the one that's shielding the pod from all the politics and making sure that we get the funding we get the Budget. They're the ones that are going into the meeting. They're making sure that it makes sense for the overall mission of the organization and letting the marketer and producer do their job. Yeah, and it's a great. Like I said, it's. A, I like it very much. When I would sort of in many organizations, that role is split. Um, you know, the person. You know, as I as a post I wrote recently on this talked a little bit about this, where I said, "Look, you know, in many organizations I go into, this is especially true in B two B organizations, where you'll see, you know, the subject matter experts, right? So in financial services, this is especially true in financial services, where the subject matter experts are really knowledgeable about the industry." 
But quite frankly, the content they produce, while technically accurate and very, very focused and broad and deep and, you know, just really... Is a snooze fest. It's a total snooze fest, right? And so you need someone who understands how to package and produce and put that into a compelling thing or multiple compelling things and actually tell that story. And that's a hard it, – it, it, you wouldn't think it is, but it's a very hard battle because the subject matter expert goes, no, no, this is my story. I'm not going to let you tell it. And the marketer goes, well, it's not a very interesting story, and there's a big fight there. And so who owns the story is a, is a big issue. And then you need somebody who actually, to your point and to Jay's point, somebody who understands where the audience is. So maybe it's somebody in PR or maybe it's somebody in brand or somebody in social who actually knows how to distribute or develop and build an audience development type person. And then you need somebody – as we've identified, like a chief content officer or somebody like that who can actually uh, clear the way and really keep the asset that we're building true to its strategy as we do other things like support campaign-based marketing and like support brand and like support customer service or whatever we're supporting in the, in the content creation business process. So I really like it and with the just sort of caveat that that one role is sometimes better, the, the sort of clear the brush role is sometimes handled by a, you know, someone who's just the boss, right? Somebody who can actually have their back. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this is, I and mean, we've talked about it many times about if you are in an organization that has not seen success in content marketing, launching a pilot is maybe the best way to go about it because, and you and I have seen this a million times, you can show all the data you want to. You could show all the competitors that are doing things that are creative and, and that are getting success in one way or another, but you have to see and feel success for yourself. And that's hard to get in a very traditional organization. So that's why you say, hey, we're going to set up this pilot program, beta test, skunkworks operation, whatever you want to call it. And, and this content marketing pod scenario would work really well in that because you just let them do their thing. You give them a six-month leash and you say, we're going we're to let you do your thing and we're going to get back in six months and we're going to talk about what's happened. And uh, I've seen this work in manufacturing organizations because they, they, they can't just bring that in. Uh, any kind of creative work or any kind of here's how we're going to communicate differently with our customers outside the value, as you say, outside the value of what our products and services offer, because it'll just get it'll, it won't go anywhere. So you put this on the outside. So do you do you agree with that? Do you see that happening on a pilot? I program? do. Absolutely. Yeah. A hundred percent. You know, I mean, I've seen I've worked with comp- big companies where, you know, uh, you know, where the attitude of one, I'm either going to go build a business case for this pilot and I'm actually going to do this thing, understanding that what you're doing is building toward this asset, right? This collection of assets that will ultimately be something, right? And it's not just 12 blog posts that are like, you know, kind of interesting. It's 12 blog posts that sort of make up this content mission that is going to be this, you know, be this ultimate expression of a thing. And, you know, you say, okay, well, six months from now, we're going to have a pilot and this is what it's going to be. And this is the vision it's going to have. And this is what we'd like it to look like. And this is value it's going to provide. And then all along the way, you, you, you either get you know, permission a priori to do that and say, this is what we're going to do. Or as I've seen the beg forgiveness, you know, instead of permission is you just go do it and you just go and you build it or you build all the assets that would actually have the capability of doing that thing. And then you come back and go, see what we did. It's kind of interesting. I know we kind of went outside the, you know, the lines here and, and all of that. And, and then you show the value that way. And I've seen both of them work and, you know, it's ultimately what we're talking about here is a culture thing, right? 
as he said very appropriately at the beginning of this article when he said, look, this is, you know, reorganizing as – this is what I love so much. Reorganizing as a, as a strategy is something that Google understands. And, you know, and, you know so in other words, they're not only reorganizing when there's financial trouble. They're reorganizing before there's financial trouble and as a competitive advantage. And, you know, Rita Gunter McGrath talks about this, the idea of moving in and out of arenas of competition, because in her book, The End of Competitive Advantage, she talks about there is no competitive advantage anymore. You have to be able to morph organically through these different arenas temporarily and take advantage of the advantage that you have now, because it won't be there in a week or two or a month or a quarter or a year. And once you figure that out, then reorganization becomes a muscle. And that, boy, if you can do that proactively and strategically and create those teams and de- you know, disassemble as much as you assemble them, you've got something that's really quite amazing, B- bigger than content marketing even. It's just a, it's a competitive advantage in the business. Which is why I still believe, and of course I just wrote a book about it, that, that startups and smaller organizations have a much uh, easier time of it. Absolutely, uh, than yes, a large yes. organization. They don't have the kingdoms to undo, right? Yeah. You just go ahead and you you organize. You actually don't reorganize. You just organize around this. Yeah, exactly. Because there's nothing yeah, to it undo. It is the way you organize, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's all I got. But it was great. Well, I loved it. It's, it's a, an it's, enjoyable yeah, it's read, such too. such a great I post. I mean, it's it. so deep. There's there's so much stuff here, you know, and, and he emailed. He was, Jay, I'm, I'll just tell you, he was kind enough to email both of us, and I promised him. I've been on the road, so I promised him a deeper response and and I'm sort of unfortunately not doing him the justice that he deserves with this by responding here first and then hopefully responding to him in more depth to his email that he sent last week. So but great job. Just a great a great wonderful thought provoking post I thought. Yeah, I mean he was he was apologizing the whole time about it, it was you know he calls it a half baked content marketing idea and even Doug Kessler in the comments said this is pretty well baked. I mean, this yeah. is this is a really his ha- his, Jay's half baked stuff is usually pretty pretty, pretty well fluffy and flaky and ready to go. Yeah, it's 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 got All some right. good taste to it. All right, well, we need to move on because his head probably is getting too big. Yes, exactly all right. All right, well, about. we're moving on to our next story here to themediabriefing.com, whose headline says, "Here we go: the only game in town. Why the Washington Post is pushing." all of its content to Facebook instant articles. Dun, dun, dun. Here we go. Washington Post announced on Tuesday that it will be pushing 100% of its content to Facebook instant articles, sparking, of course, instant debate about whether it had essentially made a deal with the devil or some sort of sound business decision that will speed its growth. One quote that was in the accompanying press release from the Washington Post uh, from the publisher, Fred Ryan, um, says the article is very illuminating about why the Post has chosen to go all in on instant articles. And the quote says, The Post has been seeing explosive growth in readership over the past year, particularly on mobile phones and among millennials. Working with partners like Facebook allows us to further attract and engage those readers. So what do you say, Joe Polizzi? Deal with the devil, smart move, or what? Well, at first, it seems absolutely... Of course, of course, but but maybe... (laughs) At first, it seems absolutely horrendous to think about doing this, especially as they're just shooting every article that they create onto Facebook and that becoming the domain. But as we've talked about many times, Facebook... I I mean, I can't remember. You call it one of the big... uh, 
network companies? Like, what do you call Facebook? Facebook is becoming. Sure. It's right. They, they are the, the basically Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, the big three broadcast yeah. networks of our time, the ABC, NBC, and CBS of our time. And the, and the way that I thought about this was, and, and actually, this is going to be a theme throughout the show today because we are just seeing that the, the internet is not. It's it's not equal for any everyone anymore anymore. It's it's really becoming an unfair playing field in a lot of cases because of the fact and well there's actually some really good stats. I don't know if it's the next one or maybe it is this one, uh with the amount oh no, it's it is this one. It's the amount of I think it's eight of the apps that are available right now. Eight of the top nine are either owned by Facebook or Google. Right. So literally our entire time that we're spending on the internet, whatever that is today, is going through two companies. And then you have Apple right after that. So, and of course, that's got to make Apple just furious that they're not in the top nine of these whole things. <laughs> of their own ice. Yeah. But right. if, we, if we believe that this is happening and the internet really comes, be, becomes I'm on Google or I'm on Facebook, I'm on Apple – and you and you just say and you you acquiesce as the Washington Post said. Look, we are not going to uh, we are going to be a content provider, and we are going to drive our revenues through a platform. And that platform, in this case, would be Facebook. And I just thought, I mean, instead of you saying the big three, I just thought immediately of almost like a cable vision or a Time Warner. Like, right? I, like I I'm NBC, but in order to be seen, I have to go through some provider. So that they yep. get that. that that That's what this seems to be. And it's almost like this is the new media's version of what we saw 30 years ago. I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, the metaphor I would use is that, you know, the Washington Post in this case is is a company that is getting their content seen through a broadcast network. And in this case, it's basically creating a show on NBC or creating a show on ABC. And it's called the Washington Post. Yep. And there you go. You go, you know, you go to that channel, you watch their content, get you know, consume their content, and assumably, Facebook is giving them. So here's the thing that I can't get out of my head. Let's, let's not forget who now owns the Washington Post, right? Yep. So this is Jeff Bezos and Amazon going, huh? This may be an interesting thing for us to make money here, and maybe it's a short-term thing, and maybe it's a long-term thing. But I can't help but think to myself that there's a longer game involved here, right? That there's a longer game that is the e-commerce product, interesting other revenue streams. And what they're doing is they're saying, we're going all in on content consumption and basically getting a, you know, extracting some fee out of Facebook, which I'm assuming they're getting. And then basically the question is how much and how long and how sort of how long will that competitive you know advantage uh, exist, and what do they have planned for after? If this is the only thing they're doing, then I think it's a flawed strategy. But I can't imagine that it is. All it, boy, I read this whole thing, and I'm thinking buy stock in Facebook. That's all I'm thinking. I mean, really? Can really? you can you imagine that if this works for the Washington Post and everyone jumps on what they have nine publishers publishing on the platform. Now it looks like Washington Post is the most all in with this strategy, but you're going to get the New York Times. New York Times is already doing it. They might go all in as well where, yeah, it, it doesn't, you're not going to the dot com. You're not going to the newspaper anymore. You're actually funneling it. Everything that you have through Facebook's, channels yeah, and however you, they I serve mean, those channels right. up yeah you may be right I, i'm you know as 
everybody who listens to the show with any regularity knows I am a bear on Facebook. But, you know, you're, you're selling it, right? I mean, and I'm, I'm seeing your point. Absolutely see your point. It's, it's – But let me let – because me, let me, we talked last week about the publisher's unwillingness – or not unwillingness, but just resistancy to change to a different business model. Now, if you said, look – the only way we can really scale this and the only way we can really grow our revenues is to follow this sponsorship model, advertising sponsorship model of some kind. Then you would look at this and say, that's not so bad. If they're, depending no, on what – we point. don't know what cuts they're getting. But let's just say you're like, look, we're not going to sell products and services. We're just not going to do that. That's not our business. But you know, Facebook owns the, the mobile device right now. Google is second. And so they're already they already actually have a business model for Google at least as it as it is today through search. Sure. So this this new one through Facebook is yeah we're going to we're going to send everything that we possibly can through that and build this audience that I would imagine they feel is a newer audience for, or a different audience for them. I can't imagine that they think it's their you know their normal audience that's going on Facebook, but maybe well, it that's becomes the real that. question, right? That's the real question: Is this a gambit to get the new audience and to get an addressable audience, which arguably they're not going to get, right? By putting all their eggs into the Facebook basket, what they're doing is they're saying, you know what, the our ability to pull in the millennial and mobile subscriber is not good in a you know in a world to your point where we've got. Eight, you know, eight or nine channels for that audience, and so in that world, we're going to acquiesce the ability for us to get an addressable audience of those millennials, and we're going to reach them in this way. This is the way we're going to reach the millennials. We'll get the other demographics another way. We'll get the baby boomers. We'll get the Gen Xers. We'll get everybody else in a different way. But to get the millennials and to get the mobile, the people who you know consume content on mobile, we're going to go all in with Facebook as our broadcast channel to get to that audience. And, I, and you really didn't pair it. I know we're going to talk about the next story about Twitter. But the, the thing that I'm thinking, I'm just trying to, you know, I can't even think out five years. But just thinking out to that point, it becomes a very uneven playing field where the big boys are going. To, it's, it's, it's almost like we're reverting to, hey, it's, it, it was, it's not this dem- democracy anymore where anyone can have a voice. It's if you want a voice, you have to play inside Facebook's world, Google's world, Apple's world. And and I would imagine there's just this other internet out there that it, you know, where the bulletin boards used to be, kind of a thing. But everything else is happening. There is another the- internet out there, Joe. I would, yeah. It's a, it's a nice place. You should come over sometime. It's a it's a beautiful little island that we call home. It might be an island pretty soon because there's. No, <laughs> I'm just be. looking at the stats, man. I mean, you see them in front of you too. Facebook, YouTube, Facebook Messenger, Google Search, Google Play, Google Maps. Yeah, that's no, the, I, it, I get spent. it. It's a, it's the, I, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people, right? I mean, I, I don't, you know, I've got the sites that I go to, and you know, I can, all of the sites that I go to on a daily basis. Quite frankly, I can list in one screen on my iPhone, right? It's, it's, there's no, there's no doubt about it that the number of, I am not, you know, the days of sort of 
surfing random websites to get to content that you want to look at is not, you know, it's not there, you know, other than, other than sort of the occasional foray into Reddit, which I do, you know, and have interest with, you know, it's, that's about, that's about the only web surfing I do anymore. And I think, you know, I think that's just natural that we're sort of building these islands that are some of them larger than another, where we're aggregating audiences and, I, you know, it, it's it's a it's a fascinating time that it's actually going back to bigger bigger network, you know, sort of aggregation mm-hmm. uh, of content. It's a it's a fascinating trend to me. But I think that so the play for brands in, in this whole thing, marketers, I would say is instead of just doing your oh yeah, I have my Facebook page and we're doing updates. If you're going to play the the Facebook game with this, then you create a show or you create a series. You create something. That just goes on Facebook that people would want to tune in for, um, just like you would do on YouTube. I think sure. that that's the ultimate play, and I think well, we and- start looking at how we even use Facebook as a marketer, and we look at it differently to say maybe maybe what Washington Post is doing that's their play. Yeah, but the, and you're right, right. And remember that our goals are different, right? As branded marketers, our goals are different than a publisher because we're not selling advertising as a means of monetizing our content. We are getting an audience to get data. The value that we get is very, very different. The audience we're targeting is much more niche than the, than what they than what they're you know than what they're targeting. It is important for us to have an addressable audience. The audience that we need to generate as a as a marketing organization is an addressable audience. That is the asset. Content is a bridge for us to get there. Exactly. Yeah, but that and that's what BuzzFeed is doing. And I, I would imagine yes, exactly. I would exactly. imagine. Yeah. So BuzzFeed, and I think that's so funny because everybody looks at BuzzFeed and says, "Oh, you know, they're all in on social media." But every time you go to BuzzFeed.com and you see all the email signups, I would imagine they have a meeting there every day that's saying, "All right, we need to get as many subscribers and as many audience members as we can while we have the opportunity to use these social channels because they might not be there tomorrow or we might not have access tomorrow." And I think that's the way you should look at it as a marketer. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Enough about, enough about, enough, enough, enough about them. Enough, enough. (laughs) All right. So here's something that seemed to make a lot of people angry. Um, Our last uh, article for the show is going to talk about Twitter. Um, Apparently, dun, 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 everybody raise your hands and arms and let's go get them at the tower and get our pitchforks ready. Twitter is removing share counts. <sighs> Big announcement surprised some, angered others, and led many to conclude that the little bird wasn't bringing in enough cash, says warfarepluggins.com, where we're linking from this article. The news, Twitter share counts is, are no longer going to be uh, appearing in tweet buttons and third-party direct access. Basically, that data available to plugins and whatnot is not going to be available any longer. And for those that want it, it's going to be highly curtailed through APIs and that sort of thing. And so what do you think, Joe? Is this uh, – what, what do you think the, the strategy is here? Is this just basically Twitter saying, oh, my God, we've got to make some money somehow? And maybe this is one way we can actually charge for something? When I saw this come out, the first thing I thought of was is when uh, Facebook changed their algorithm. And everyone right. was up in arms. Oh, my goodness. How can Facebook do this? And why are they doing it? Whatever. Well, why were they doing it? Because they're trying to make money. Well, this is going to really freak out some of these social platforms, right? Uh, it, use, it is freaking. It, it, it's freaking. You know, you mean other social platforms? Well, the anal, Well, not, well, there's that. But then, so so I was reading one article. So just as a side note, one article said that the reason they were doing this was because they didn't want everybody to see how bad Facebook was actually 
you know, yeah, I don't believe that at across all. the skull. I don't think I don't that's the case that. at all. No. The but the, another one said that this was actually a way to make money to actually make that data stream monetizable. And, you know, I think of things like the social analytics tools that people pay for and all of these social platforms that use the number of retweets and the number of shares as, as, a, uh, as a metric of showing things like how – what content should be curated, what content, you know, and all that, you know, sort of feeds into the algorithm of many of those enterprise business platforms. And I think they're going to be I, – I, th- I don't know. I, have, I can't find any information about this, but it seems like they would be SOL. Well, if you, so look at it from a couple perspectives, right? So a consumer, the belief is, is that if you go to a site and it has a high Twitter count of shares, that people are more likely to share. That's the general belief, right? So, right. oh, this is popular and I should yes. share this too. So that's the one. Now, you got the developers there that have been using the, the open API from this. And, and this seems like a real facepalm to, to the developers. It's like, hey, sorry. I mean, even reading the comments of the Warfare plugin site, I was going through all of them, and, and they're mostly developers. And they're like saying, hey, thanks. You didn't really it's, – basically, it's like getting bad, bad news via a Post-it note. That's how the one guy that commented <laughs> said, this is just terrible. Awesome this comment. is just, yeah, this is That's the way an to awesome comment. Yeah, we've been a partner with them for X number of years. And then all of a sudden, it's just, hey, sorry, you don't get this anymore. And they base their Well, that's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it. a, it's, it's a good point. I couldn't even find the thing from Twitter. I looked all over Google, and maybe it's just my Google Foo skills aren't that great. But I couldn't even find where Twitter said this. I could only find where other people were saying that Twitter said this. I did not look at that. I just saw the avalanche of news reports. And, yeah, and the I mean, there was a bunch of news reports. Well, there was, there was, let's be clear. The news reports were from sites like whatever it is, pluginwarfare.com, right? And, and those sorts of things. They weren't, I didn't see anything like in the Wall Street Journal or anything like that. I mean, not that it would necessarily make the Wall Street Journal, but I didn't see anything like, I was really interested in this and I thought it was a, 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 a big news item, but. Not a lot of people covered it, and, and I didn't ever see – I didn't see like a Twitter press release saying, well, here – by the way, here's the thing. I think it's that's a fascinating comment well, by that commenter, but you know, it's like getting broken up exactly, with you know, sorry. over a text message. <laughs> it is exactly like that. But, right. okay, like think, let's think about the theme of the show now about this uh, uh, this unequality that's going on with, with yeah. these big major players. If you are an established brand, whether it's a larger brand and you have uh, like an Intel IQ or an American Express Open Forum uh, versus a new player and a new blogger, it absolutely affects the newer player more because that's a lot. That's credibility to a new blogger that comes out, a a person that wants to be an influencer, a small startup. They want to show those sharing stats because say, hey, this means something. You might yes. want to. We need to get up. We need to get uh, up and running. That's we a great we need point. to get some traction. That's a great point. But if you're the Washington Post, if you're the New York Times, if you're American Express, you if don't Coca Cola, you don't care. This doesn't right. affect them at all. So again, this is going back to every every move that seems to be made, at least in this show. Next that's week it fast. might be. Different. I hadn't even thought about it that way, dude. That's that's, a, that's yes, exactly. So that's why I just see this Armageddon for the small players, and you're going <laughs> to have the, everybody else on the outside looking in, and and Twitter's just looking out for the money and if that's the case if this is a business model decision which i i really do believe it somebody up there out there over there believes that this is a business model decision somewhere since that since that's the case (laughs) uh they're sending people to what's the site that you have to get to nip 
G N I P. So it's basically every time I see that I think Ganip Ganip. Remember Ganip Ganip with the kids? <laughs> no, I was Ganip Ganip. You don't remember? Born. Somebody will tweet us yet. when they hear the show. They will hear Ganip Ganip. They will go, "Of course I remember Ganip Ganip." That's probably where the name came from. I don't. Know. I have probably. no idea. I have no idea. But anyways, <laughs> so there. So Twitter's like, okay, well, you can still get your data, but if you want your data, you're gonna have to go to Ganip or right. Nip or whatever and get your data, and you're gonna have to pay like three thousand dollars a month to do that. Exactly. And that means all the all the all, all those smaller players, players are, are gonna not gonna to pay for raise that. their prices and blah blah blah. Yeah. The larger ones are, and I man, we just did this with Facebook though. This exact same reaction. I remember everyone was a gasp. On Facebook, oh, Facebook can't do that. We, they can't control which what our followers see this or that or the other. Well, here's just Twitter's doing the same thing. Right, it's all exactly. around the business model. And you know what? In three weeks, it's just, it's going to be all forgotten. It, oh, sure, of course, it's going to be of gone. Course. And so, right. right, it's like it's like Donald Trump's hair. You 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 are amazed at it by a while. It look at it and then you forget about it a week later. I guess the I guess the thing to remember with this one is: Does this mean that Facebook and LinkedIn? And Pinterest and Instagram or whatever do the same thing. Oh, of say. course. Yeah. Well, this is, you know, this is the it, first. well, watch and see if it works. If it works, then do it. And if it doesn't work, then don't do it. And who knows? We could be wrong and it could be totally a, the reason they're doing it is completely different than what we're talking about. But it doesn't matter because it doesn't we matter. have no say in it by, anyways. Well, they're going to be bought by Google anyway. So I was having a have, conversation on Facebook I today. I know. I saw At that. At some point, Google's going to buy them. So I, it doesn't matter. It, it's, uh, the year's running out. Did you say by the end of the year that had to happen? Or no? I did. I did. I'm, I'm, I'm holding true to my word. I th- I'm thinking it's going to be by the end of the year. It may not be. It's, we're, running out of, we're running out of months, but you know, we'll see. Well, I'll tell you what. Now that Dorsey, Jack Dorsey's running this company again, anything. He's, yeah. He he's going to you know, shake he's got, things he, he's, up. Right. He's either going to shave you know, and get his beard all trimmed off, or, or he's going to do something with the company or sell it. So. He's got another company to run. He's got to go run Square, so he needs to get something going. This is just a hobby to him now. Yeah, He's exactly. probably like, what can I do to like piss people off? Let's just exactly. take away their numbers. <laughs> That'll be great. <laughs> He's probably sitting back there going, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Playing, putting, like, fondling his beard. All right. Anyway, we have a wonderful sponsor we should talk about, speaking of. We absolutely no, I'm do. I'm not even going to go the there, sponsor. but yes, we have a beautiful sponsor. The sponsor of episode number 99 today is Brandpoint Hub, our good friends at Brandpoint. They are offering this wonderful little article that uh, we went through on last episode called Number Crunch. How a content- good, good it is. It is. How a content marketing platform saves time and money, and basically... If you are thinking about a content marketing platform versus maybe how you do your content now, which is without a content marketing platform, it's something to really look at. And it goes through, you know, here's all the time that it takes to run a blog post through this way. And here's the time it takes to run through a content marketing platform. It's just something to think about. So if you are at that point, hopefully you have a strategy first. But once if you have your strategy, that's great. And then you can move on and say, maybe I need some technology to help me execute that strategy. This is an article you want to take a look at and uh, really looks at how much time a content marketing platform can really save you. So uh, you can get this at bit.ly slash brandpointhub. So you can get the article at bit.ly slash brandpointhub. And a super special thanks to our good friends at Brandpoint Hub. And they've been great supporters of us ever since the beginning. And yeah. uh, so we're glad that Go they, read that article. It's a good one. It is it's a good a really one. Good they, one. they put yeah. some time and effort into it. And I 
love yeah. to see when you, especially agencies, <laughs> put into time. Agencies, vendors, when they really put time into good content, and uh, we like to promote that. So please go check it out. Tell how that works out. You put the time into good content, and all of a sudden, good things happen. And by the way, they also it's are putting... Odd equation. But they're also uh, putting money and resources into distributing that content. Exactly. Which I cannot... They're marketing the marketing. Uh, where was I at the other day? I was at... Joseph, I was, I was at, um, what was the conference I was at? Uh, Brand Managed Camp. I'm sorry. I was at Brand Managed Camp in Las Vegas, and I saw Joseph Jaffe speak for the first time. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Great speaker, really nice guy. And he was saying, he was talking about the distribution of, or the amount of investment that you would have for content creation versus distribution and marketing of right. that. And, you know, sure. we generally have talked about a 50-50 or a 40-60 split on some of right. that stuff. He recommended yeah. 10-90. 1090. Wow. And he says that's 10, cre- 10, 10 90 on- creation, 10, 10 distribution. No. Other way around? 10 on the creation and 90% on the distribution. And basically talked about we need to focus, and there's something we've talked about focusing on less is more. Instead of creating a bazillion blog posts out there, create a short, smaller number of amazing right. pieces I of content that. and then put your engine behind it. I think, I, you know, I'd look, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's not a one size fits all, but yeah, I, I'm I'm with him. I'm I'm with him on that. I would have. Well, I think that that's been the trend. That's what we heard at Content Marketing World over and over again. Sure. Was like stop creating all this content and really create quality that's going to make uh, the marketing dollars you put behind it count for something. Yeah. So there you Absolutely. go. That's it. All right. Yep. All that's right, all folks. It is for it's your favorite segment of the show. It's our rants and rave segment where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave on something that makes us feel like we're watching reruns or a rave like we're seeing some new awesome show for the first time. And so I have this old marketing, so I'm going first. Um, Thank you. And <laughs> Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, I So I'm not even sure if this is a rant or a rave. I'll just let you figure it out, whether it's a rant or a rave. It's commentary. I'm going to bet it's a rant. Else. If you, it's, whenever you say be, that, it may, it's, it's going to lean rant. a little more rant, oh, I good. think, than it is. But it's it's ultimately got something positive to say, I think. All anyway, right, first of all, huge hat tip to both Jeff Cram for asking me to think about this in an email and for Kathy McPhillips, our own Kathy McPhillips um, at CMI, for tipping me off to the thing I'm going to rant a little more about, or rave. I don't know what it is, but it's whatever it is. So the first article that I'm going to link to in the show notes comes from Business Insider. And... It's basically the whole idea that if you didn't notice, Medium, the platform Medium, which we've talked about on the show before, got some dough. Um, and it's founded by co-founder of Twitter, uh, Evan Williams, and it raised $57 million from venture capitalists last week. And so the big promise with new, uh, with the Medium is that it's not about clicks, it's about quality. Of course, there's no advertising, how they're going to monetize it. They're in the classic Silicon Valley show, their pre-revenue company, and how are they going to make money? Well, they're starting to make some money with native advertising, and 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 this article goes on to talk a little bit about whether they should get into native advertising, or it's starting to look a little more like companies are doing their press releases through this platform, and do we need another platform? And is Facebook Notes, now that it's redesigned, going to actually be a competitor to Medium? Or if Twitter, which has made some rumblings about actually getting rid of the 140-character limit altogether, whether they become a long-form media... So it's a big disruptive time. And so here they are. Are they worth $400 million? I don't know. I don't 
care, really. It's a pretty platform. There's some really good writers that are writing on it. Will it become more noisy? And more, Of course it will as it becomes more popular. And I, the only reason I even mention that is because I know when a platform is going to get noisy is when my wife goes, hey, should I be blogging on this platform? It's like, okay, now we've got the tipping point where it's actually at the consumer level. So that's to tee up this idea that is actually on an article on Medium – and this is where my hat tip to Kathy comes out, which is a post by Jeff Jarvis. And it's basically we should reinvent advertising. And he starts out this article by saying, look, advertising is broken. And we in journalism, because he's a journalism professor, and we in journalism and media have got to take responsibility for reinventing advertising. And so it's really the whole post, which goes through a very, very long argument, some of which I'm behind him with, some of which I'm like, okay, really, that's a bit of a strong stance. But anyway, it's a call to arms. It's a call to arms for him to say, let's get journalist to fix advertising. And he goes on to say things like, we need to redefine it as journalists. We need to ask publishers. We need to have the guts to turn down advertising from clients where the audience has rejected the ads and we need to make them better and all that kind of stuff. And that's all fine. I think that's great. So as I've said many times, I'm a marketing guy. I don't have a dog in that fight. If they want to go, if journalism's want to do that, then great. But here's the thing. The article to me, as I read it and finished it, it's really the argument was it's the perfect time for content marketing. It was basically a call to arms for content marketing. And the, 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 what really the interesting thing to me was is that he, when he bullet points it out, he says the things that we should focus on as journalists are relevant, useful, engaging. I mean, it sounds, it, it's like the first three words of our definition of content marketing. He doesn't really talk about content marketing, but to me it's the call for content marketing. And so what I'm going to do is I would put a call to arms for marketers. And I would say, here's the thing. If they, the journalist, won't um, ultimately step up and fix advertising and marketing, which I absolutely don't believe they will. I, I don't think journalists are going to come up and fix advertising and marketing. Well, let's marketers and advertisers, let's fix journalism. And so I do believe that brands can actually provide value to audiences in a journalistic way, perhaps not in hard nuding. Hard-hitting news ways, but perhaps. Perhaps not in undercover exposés into their own industries, but perhaps. Perhaps only in the sugary-filled pop culture B2B how-tos, niche-oriented technical specifications, but perhaps not. Perhaps brands can take on the bigger world issues, the larger social constructs, the more difficult conversations that we should be having, if not for the pop-up, pop-under, right rail banner that flashes in front of our eyes. I believe, I do really truly believe that brand practitioners, PR practitioners, marketing practitioners, and yes, even advertising practitioners can assume the gauntlet of evolving advertising, PR, and marketing into a practice that leads business, and yes, perhaps journalism into a new era. I think if we can create experiences that mean something to audiences, everybody wins. Everybody from the journalist, everybody from the consumer, everybody from the advertiser, and it fixes advertising. And perhaps the journalists are going to set up, uh, are going to step up and do some of this, but perhaps they're not. And I think the marketers have the opportunity to set up first and let's see who moves first. That's the end of my commentary. Would it surprise you that I agree with you? <laughs> it would not. It would not. It would not surprise me. And yeah. the res- all the resources are with the marketing side of the house to do this. Yeah. 
Exactly. And that's the thing. I mean, how many times have we said that, you know, Apple could buy the New York Times, you know, 40 times over and still have plenty of money to rule the world as they are. So that's that's, that's right. the thing that it's it's hard to come out and say. And again, again, I'm not a journalist, so I, I can't um, I can't say that the journalists should fix this. But I'm saying that, first of all, they're not on the business side. So it's tough. I mean, you and I have worked with many journalists. That's a tough call to arms for them to do. Yeah. Um, the one, yeah. You, but it, it's much easier because you've got to get, journalists have got to get the power and the money to do this. And, and the power and the money already sits with the brands and the, and the marketing side. So it would be a lot easier for them to say, Hey, we're just, we're just going to, to do this content marketing thing. It, it it was it was inspiring to me because I just came out of this event last week where I got to meet with these just incredible, incredibly smart people. I don't know why they invite me every year, but they somehow do. But these incredibly smart people in financial services and in nonprofits and education and politics, and they were it was an event on innovation. and um, And we were talking, and, and one guy said something that I wrote it down in my notebook because it's just it's it's I'm, I I won't belabor it here, but because and it'll sound too bumper stickery when I say it, but just know that there's it's deeper than this where he was basically saying look in it, when you're talking about innovation and talking about revolutionary types of innovation what we tend to do is we look at a choice and we go, well, there's A on one side of the spectrum and there's B on the other side of the spectrum. And we trend, tend to sort of go, okay, well, what can we incrementally fix with A, B, B, A, A to B or something and try and fix and sort of incrementally go up there? And he said, really, what we need to be doing is looking at A versus B and going, the answer is blue. And, you know, and it's, it's we need to look at not a different evolution of advertising or a different evolution of journalism. It's something different altogether. That's exactly right. It's, it's the, I read this great article on the start of Uber in fast company. Uh, and I basically, I think it was last month's fast company. So if you get a chance, have you read this? Have you read the, I have not. No, okay. No, I well, read well worth the time to, to read. And there, there's a, there's a whole section in that where they're looking for the business model it wasn't just Uber, but they were talking about the different startups that the founder and his partners were working on and whatnot. And every time they would come up with a solution or an idea for a product, he would say, that's small thinking. Right. And I exactly. think that's what you're talking – that's what you're getting yeah. at. You're saying it, it, we don't have to fix advertising because advertising is not going to be the solution in any way, right. shape, or form. Exactly. Any evolution of advertising is not the answer. It is, it is, it is something else. Yeah. Or that's the opportunity anyway. That's the opportunity. It may, you know, I don't know that it'll get there, but, and, and I don't have the answer, certainly, but that's the, that's the opportunity. All right. I've got a, what about you? I've got a, a very you? little – I just love this article. It was actually from the, the media briefing also, and we've already covered this. But this was a, an article called Why Newspapers Must Dare Not to Be Daily by Colin Morrison. And, of course, anything with less – uh, velocity. I, I love these days, so I'm all into it. So I read this article. And there's some interesting statistics, and this is from U- UK-specific market, but you can make the case of you know that daily newspapers are hurting all over the world right now, except maybe in China and India right now. But everywhere right. else, uh, they're, they're desperate to try to figure out you know, their model, they're trying to keep as much revenue they can on the, on the print side while they're moving to this, whatever this new digital model is going to be in this, in this heat of disruption. Um, it says, in, and this whole idea of weekends. So in all dailies, if you look at all daily newspapers in the UK, 75% of the total revenue 
comes from the weekend editions. Hmm. Wow. Saturday is their most profitable day, and he says, by far, with lar- much larger circulations on the weekend and 50% higher cover prices. So the thought would be, and I'll, and I'll bring this around to brand marketers, but basically the case that, that this gentleman is making is, well, we, you could just go to weekends or Saturdays right. or Sundays and you would be much more pro- – less, less revenue, but not much less revenue, but much more profitable. Right. And as I was re- – so basically that's the, the fix that, that this gentleman has. And what I loved about that take and working with more and more uh, companies that are just creating gobs and gobs of content, I really think that the answer is – what we've talked about throughout this entire episode, but what you said is the answer is blue. The answer, the answer is something right. different than what you're normally doing. It doesn't have to be, oh, we have to do this blog this way at this velocity, five articles a day. This is the way it is. I would start to look at changing. I think now is the perfect time to change everything. Change, Take all your assumptions away about what was successful in the past, especially with all the Apple and Google and Facebook stuff that we've talked about this episode and really look at something that is blue or Z is the answer <laughs> right, exactly. instead of anything that we've been doing. And I think Swiffer pads. Well, and I think this is a start. Like, now, yeah. for, so, for example, to take your analogy a little bit more, a, a stepping stone uh, solution is to go to just weekends and to do something else on those other days that is completely different. Exactly. Exactly. Instead of basically what's happening now is it's a I'm we put most newspapers put it up on digital and then they curate the best of those digitals and then they put it into the next day's paper. Right. Um, There's no real analysis. And I think what happens with if you did a weekend edition or one newspaper a week, that would be time for what's happened during the week and really give it some thoughtful analysis from some from some amazing journalists. I think that would be so valuable, right? Instead of just right. saying, because they already got the news. I don't need the paper now. Yeah, Why don't, exactly. What, what, do I want, what am I reading the paper for? Because I've got the news. What I want is I want different thinking on the news. I want to know what that means to this very smart person and how I should think and act differently because of it, not just the news. And I think that's what brands need to do the same thing instead of just, hey, blog post, podcast, whatever the case is. Just to, get to, just to do the content for content's sake is to rethink everything about what we're doing right now. So that, I just I don't know why that spurred that whole talk there. No, but. it's a really good one. No, it's really, really good. <clears throat> just rethinking the whole, you know, so many companies I talk to, the, the reason that they, you know, I ask them, when you finish, you know, when you finish a piece, you know, whether it's a white paper or a blog or something like that, you finish it, when do you publish it? Well, we do it immediately. And I'm like, Why? You know, the, in other words, the requisite time to publish something is when we're done with it, right? It's, yep. you know, they don't think about <laughs> when we should publish it or why or, you know. So what happens is, is that we tend to finish content in gobs. And so we bury our audiences with content and then we starve them for content. And then we – but, you know, it's like let's think, of, let's think of different ways to do this that might be, you know, might be more uh, advantageous. And, and on a total side note, and I just saw this on, on Facebook – uh, because it, we're bringing up the print thing for a little bit here, but there was this thing about oh, it's 1999, a cartoon, 1999, and you get all this mail, and then over in the next room, somebody was super excited because it said you've got mail through an email. 
So you got an email. Right. Super excited yeah, about exactly. an email. And then, right. it, and then it goes 2015. I've got 220 unread emails. emails and somebody's right. cheering because they got a letter in the okay, mail. They got a written letter. Yeah, Again, exactly. that's why you know, I would I say if all your customers, uh, if all your customers were at a trade show and none of your com- competitors, would you be at that trade show? Everybody answers, absolutely. I said, that's the state of print, print media right now. Yeah. So off soapbox. There you go. There you go. I love it. What's your, well, let's, what's your this old marketing, let's, brother? Let's do the namesake of the show, yeah. which is this old marketing. So I happen to be, this is one you didn't even know we were going to do. So um, I happen to be doing some research this week on Thomas Edison, um, as I am wont to do. And so I was reading about Thomas Edison, and all of a sudden, it I struck me as I was reading this paragraph in this book um, that he was a content marketer, um, which is kind of cool. Thomas Edison is a content marketer. So it turns out that as he was trying to get electric lighting sort of as a standard in the cities and across the country, um, the gas lighting people were, of course, rebelling, much like we would think about in television uh, cable, the broadcast versus cable, and of course, you know, all of the different sort of ways and technologies and Uber versus taxis and all that kind of stuff. And the way that was this was happening was you had the electric light companies and the gas light companies sort of battling and gas light was saying electricity was dangerous and the electric companies were saying, of course, the opposite was true. And so, interestingly, uh, Edison decided to start putting out a magazine, and he put out this magazine that, and this is what I love mostly about this, um, he did this in, this was 1882 when it came out, and he started to print this magazine, and the really cool and interesting thing here was he printed on the cover that it was top secret, that this was really a secret thing that he was creating, um, and it was confidential and only for the company's employees only, and only for people who were directly associated with the uh, Edison Electric Light Company, and, and the name of the publication was the Edison Electric Light Company Bulletin. And so they started publishing it, first of all, as a four-page leaflet that was basically five by eight inches in size, and it would go out and it would hand-delivered. And so but they, what they would do is they would leak it out, And basically, in each of these issues, they were talking about how unsafe gaslighting was. And they started having these warning articles about why, you know, gas was starting fires and why um, gaslighting was, you know, basically causing explosions at gas plants and asphyxiation by leaking gas pipes and all this kind of stuff. And it started to become more and more widespread, this sort of disease with uh, the gas technology and electric lighting started to win the day. And then the magazine itself started to get more popular and more popular. And so they started producing more positive articles about the idea of electric light. And then they started talking about the different flavors of electric light, because I guess in some uh, of the way that Edison did it was a different than a way that arc lighting, uh, which I don't understand very much the technical here. Tesla. Arc lighting was was very, very dangerous. And so they were saying this was the way to go about it. And so they started using the same tactics against arc lighting versus the way that Edison was doing it. And so this magazine was published for a number of years, um, basically for about five or excuse me, three to five years uh, that it was published. And it wasn't his only magazine. He, he I guess, published a number of these, um, one about trains, another uh, was um, a a weekly thing on business. And he was quite the uh, publisher of sort of these internally focused magazines that would ultimately be content. I thought it was just a really cool example of content marketing. It's so, my, so my son Joshua did a whole presentation on Nikola Tesla 
And the yeah. one thing we so that was the big competitor. It was Edison against Tesla. And the one yeah. thing we learned was that Tesla was absolutely brilliant. And for whatever you know, however you believe it, so, I mean, he was just amazing. Uh, maybe even more brilliant than Edison was, even though Edison was brilliant. But Edison was a better marketer. And Edison went to the mats <laughs> and would market yeah. like crazy and just didn't uh, – and Tesla didn't have that kind of sophistication and could never win that battle. So every time something came up where Tesla's technology uh, was agreed to, Edison would fight that battle from a marketing standpoint and beat him every time. Yeah, so, was it cool? That's really, really cool. Great, great story. Absolutely love yeah. it. Yeah. So, All right, so um, where are you? You're in Denver. I'm in You're Denver. In Denver I'm week. speaking. I'm keynoting tomorrow at the American Bankers Association meeting. Very nice. There you go. I'll, then I'll be. I'm flying then to Newark, and I have two meetings. I have a keynote on Tuesday and one on Wednesday, and then I'm back home after that. And uh, are Lovely. you? Are you traveling this week? I'm uh, yes. I'm flying on Tuesday. I fly to Chicago, um, where I do a keynote for. Uh, it's a group called Zinked. Uh, or zinc, rather, sorry, not uh, past tense, zinc. Um, they are a pharmaceutical-focused uh, technology and content company, actually, and so they're having me be their keynote speaker um, at uh, at their big conference for pharma companies. And so I'm doing this one this week, and then next week when I fly Saturday, I'm off to Germany to do their German version of the same. So their America's conference and then their European conference in Berlin next week. And thus it begins. You and I are and thus traveling it begins. Yes, exactly. <laughs> all over the world. And thus it world. begins. Exactly. And we love this exactly. time of year. So episode though. 100 will will come next week while uh, while I'm in Germany. That's right. We're doing a very special 100th episode. A very special 100. So tune in for that. There you go. Looking forward to it, my all friend. Right. Okay. All right. Well, that is it for 99, folks. That, for Joe Polizzi, this is Robert Rose. I'm signing off. Tweet us up. We do love those stories. Thank you so much for the ones you sent over. Hashtag it up, please. This old marketing. Just, I will be honest with you. We will miss them, and we do miss them when you don't hashtag it. So please hashtag it if you want us to see it and 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 all of that. And, you know, if you've got an email, send it to us the old-fashioned way, too, at thisoldmarketing at contentinstitute.com. And if you like this episode, number 99, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All the links we talked about today will be in the show notes, both in the show that comes out uh, later on tonight, as well as... Uh, that uh, what happens on Saturday at thisoldmarketing.com. All right, remember, folks, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. Part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.